The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. good to gather together around the Word of God this morning, and this morning we continue in our series from Hebrews. We're come now to the second half of Hebrews chapter 9, and we find ourselves in the middle of uh, an extended section, a chapter and a half or so, in which the author is examining the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice to the sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament. Last week, we saw that Jesus' sacrifice fully purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God, and so gives us access into the presence of God for all eternity. This week, if you will, as we spin the gem of Christ's sacrifice and see another facet of its beauty and glory, we're going to see that Jesus' death wipes away sin once for all securing for God's people the promised eternal life. If you would, start with me uh, in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9 and follow as we read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have had had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, what glorious words 
are written in your word to us. Would your spirit encourage and lift up our hearts and save our souls and give us joy in Christ this morning. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Here in 21st century America, we live pretty clean and tidy lives overall. It's true, some of us might know some teenagers whose rooms may or may not be growing things. And Mike Rowe on Dirty Jobs reminds us that there are still people in meat packaging plants and sewage cleaning facilities whose jobs are pretty dirty. But most of us live with our hand sanitizer and our Lysol wipes close at hand, and our lives are, are fairly clean. Most of our churches are pretty comfortable too. We walk into church this morning and here we have bright white walls and, and pews. We have vacuumed floors and spotless bathrooms, hopefully, and an environment that overall feels clean. Even when churches do put up reminders of something as gruesome as the crucifixion, usually it's a nice mahogany-stained cross that hangs on the wall and fits the cleanliness of our environment just fine. So we might do a double-take if we heard some of the comments that non-Christians make about Christianity. It's a slaughterhouse religion, says one non-Christian critic. They swim in fountains of blood, says another. You might think of the hymn that we sing that would give them that line. The Bible is full of killing animals, pouring out blood, even celebrating blood. When we come to Hebrews 9 this morning to examine the superiority of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, this passage is all about death and blood. In fact, the author's main argument in this passage is found right at the beginning in verse 15 where we started, and you see what the author says. He says, Jesus has secured the promised eternal inheritance for all whom God has called through his death, the sacrifice of his blood which completely cancels sin. Now, in the rest of the passage, the author is going to explain this statement by giving us two facts and one result of these facts. Two facts and one result of these facts. I want to look at each of them together. In verses 16 to 22, the author of Hebrews uh, builds his case for fact number one, which he states plainly in verse 22. You can see it there. Uh, stated quite clearly. And the fact is this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now the author of Hebrews begins by declaring that uh, a covenant that is going to bring forgiveness of sins will have to be established by a death. And you see that in verses 16 and 17, uh, he draws the analogy to a will. A will is also an agreement or a covenant, but the, the terms of the will don't come to the benefactor uh, until a death has occurred. If your great aunt Gertrude has willed you a million dollars, that million dollars is not yours until your great aunt Gertrude passes away. And it's the same with the old covenant, says the author of Hebrews. Under the old covenant, the covenant for the forgiveness of sins, those transgressions could only be forgiven when a death had occurred. Immediately, the author looks back at the Old Covenant and begins to examine how this played out. The author looks back to Exodus 24, when Moses and Israel confirm the covenant that God has made for them by sacrificing oxen and sprinkling their blood on the altar and on the people. And not only that, but 
the vessels of the tabernacle were also sprinkled with blood, so that the author conclude, can conclude under the law almost everything is sprinkled with blood. Now, in today's sort of germ-conscious world, it's hard for us to imagine sprinkling blood on something in order to make it clean. We see blood splattered and we get out bleach. But in the Old Covenant, it's very clear. In order to be purified of your sins, in order to be pure before God, you have to be sprinkled with blood. Every article in the tabernacle to be holy was sprinkled with blood. And so the author of Hebrews states the obvious conclusion in the first fact very clearly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now maybe we sit here and think, okay, well, that might be true, but why is that true? Why is the shedding of blood necessary for the forgiveness of sins? And it's very clearly because the punishment for sin is death. When we sin against God, death is the justly deserved punishment. And for God's wrath and justice to be appeased, a death must occur. Of course, it's the very mercy of God that he establishes a substitute so that something or someone else can die in our place. But this is the constant message of Scripture. Think back to the very first sin after Adam and Eve sinned. What does God do? He kills two animals, sheds their blood, and covers Adam and Eve with the skins of those animals. You think of the covenant that was established with Moses and blood was shed and sprinkled over the people. When the tabernacle and temple come along, Leviticus, God's people are told that if anyone sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, he is to bring a bowl and shed its blood for the forgiveness of sins. At the day of atonement, once a year, blood was shed for the sins of God's people. See, sin deserves death, and the wrath and justice of God cannot be satisfied without the shedding of blood. And it's God's gracious provision in the Old Testament that animals, the blood of animals, is given to atone for the sins of God's people. But that gracious provision in the Old Covenant was still imperfect, for it had to be done over and over. It could not perfectly cleanse the conscience of God's people. It could not fully atone. And so it pointed ahead to a better sacrifice, a better shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Now this is so important for our faith and so unique to the understanding of Christianity. And I realized this in a new way two weeks ago. It was about 10 days ago, uh, several of us, I believe it was 10 of us from Westminster and our sister church, Harvest PCA, went to the Islamic Center uh, in Lancaster for a meeting for better understanding at the suggestion of Anis Zaka, which many of you will know, uh, that our congregation knows well. And there, Dr. York and Imam Fuad each gave a 20-minute presentation on the question, how does God reveal himself in Christianity and Islam? And Dr. York did such a good job highlighting the importance of blood sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. When Imam Fuad stood up to give his uh, presentation, he said, he said, we do not think blood is necessary at all for the forgiveness of sins. Allah can forgive sins out of his mercy, no conditions. We believe that Allah can simply forgive. Now, I hadn't realized this difference. This was fascinating to me to learn this difference. And maybe as you think about this, you wonder, well, what about Christianity? Can't our God just forgive out of his mercy as well? Uh, can't, isn't our God merciful enough just to forgive sin? 
And yet God has clearly revealed year after year and event after event since the very first sin in Genesis 3 that sin is heinous rebellion. And God cannot just overlook sin with a slight of his hand without an offense to his character, his justice, and his glory. In order for God to be true to his justice, true to his character, and true to his glory, in order to show mercy, he must also punish this heinous rebellion. And so blood is required, death is required to atone for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's fact number one. Now fact number two comes in verses 23 through 26, and here we learn the glorious truth that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And you can see as you look there in verses 23 and following, the author of Hebrews argues that the blood of bulls and goats was all right for what they were intended for, to temporarily purify the vessels and worshipers in the earthly tent, but they could never secure eternal forgiveness or the promised eternal inheritance of life with God. The blood of an animal was never enough to wash out the creases in the corners of our hearts. It was never enough to cleanse us through and through, to make us permanently pure and fit for the presence of God. And yet, if the tabernacle, the earthly copy of God's presence, needed blood to purify it, how much more must our hearts be purified with blood to enter the very presence of God? In order to satisfy fully God's wrath and clean out our hearts to bring us near to Him. In fact, the guilt and stain of sin is so great that it only takes us a brief minute to review our lives or the history of God's people to realize the obvious point. In order for sins to be forgiven, we needed not more blood, we needed a different type of blood than what was offered under the old covenant. And that is exactly what Christ's blood did. Christ's blood was not the blood of an animal, it was not even just the blood of a human being, it was the blood of the eternal Son of God, the blood of Jesus the Messiah, offered on behalf of his people, and his blood cleanses completely. And Hebrews makes the obvious point. Unlike the bulls and goats, Jesus does not need to offer himself again and again for sins, which would require him to suffer repeatedly throughout the history of the world. No, his blood is fully and totally sufficient to put away sins once for all. The guilt of sin, the shame of sin, the consequences for sin, all of it is put away once for all by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so once again, we find ourselves in a how much more argument If the blood of bulls and goats could satisfy God's wrath on the day of atonement once a year, how much more will Christ's own blood satisfy God's wrath completely and wipe away our sin completely so that we stand white as snow before our God? That's why we sing, isn't it? What can wash away our sins? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is the point that the author of Hebrews is making. Jesus has secured the promised eternal inheritance for all whom God has called through his death, the sacrifice of his blood, which completely cancels sin. Now we have these two facts, these two great facts, the need for blood and the offer of Christ's blood. But before we go on to the result of these two facts, I want to pause for a minute. I want to pause and make sure we understand 
How important it is for us to remember these two facts on a daily basis. Not one of us is going to go through a single day without facing the immediate importance of these two twin facts for our lives. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and that Jesus' blood has offered the once-for-all payment to put away sins. And I think we can think of it by asking ourselves this question. Does our view of sin hold up to the Bible's view of sin? See, it is so easy for you and I to waltz through our days with a fairly benign view of our little selfishnesses, our little sins against one another, the little ways that we focus on ourselves at the expense of the glory of God. In fact, we have all sorts of strategies for reducing our guilt and minimizing the weight of our sin. Let's just review a few of them, shall we? We diminish the weight of our sin and reduce the significance of our sin by focusing on the big sins of others in our culture rather than on our persistent sins that weigh us down in our pursuit of God and his holiness. This is perhaps a particular weakness for those of us who are generally conservative Christians. We love to talk about our culture and how it's getting worse and worse on how our culture is obsessed with money and self Uh, how uh, abortion is uh, a problem in our culture and and an evil, and all of those things are true. But the problem comes when we focus on them as our main focus on sin and ignore the persistent sins in our own hearts. See, we can recognize legitimate awful sins and use it as a defense mechanism to notice and recognize the legitimate evils in our own hearts. That's one strategy we sometimes use. How about another? We diminish the weight of our own sin by expecting that we'll sin and so ceasing to be horrified when it shows up. See, we can have very good theology that we are broken people, that we will not be perfect until Jesus comes again and so we should expect that we will still commit sin. That's good theology. But it can become a cover for being okay with our sinfulness. No one's perfect, we say, as we minimize this sin and shove it under the carpet. This is just the sin struggle that I have in my life, we say, as we don't take attempts to mortify and defeat it. Of course I'm going to sin. It's impossible not to, we say. And we accept our sin rather than understand its heinousness. I see this in my own life. We all do this from time to time, I think. Jerry Bridges writes in The Pursuit of Holiness, such a convicting statement. He says, too often our goal is just not to sin too much, or at least not to sin too badly. But if we had the same view of sin that God has, then we would hate sin like God hates it. Then even if we know we will not be perfect, our goal would be to not sin at all. See, our good theology can become a cover for sinfulness in our lives. How about another strategy? We diminish the weight of sin by adopting cultural ideas that sin is just religion's term for using shame and guilt to force us to behave the way it wants us to. Shame, sin, guilt, they just add to our depression and anxiety and we need to stop focusing on our faults and develop a more positive self-image. Now this is a very popular message in our culture and even if we don't fall into it all the way, Sometimes we can let it seep into our minds and hearts in little ways. The message of our culture says stop listening to the voices within you that condemn you for your sins. Stop listening to the voices of the church or the others that get you down and embrace who you are. 
Stop letting others try to change you or tell you that you are failing. Just be yourself. It's not surprising that in this coming year there are a couple of new releases with titles like Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, and Girl, Stop Apologizing, A Shame-Free Plan for Embracing and Achieving Your Goals. All of this fits with the self-esteem focus, but we can't buy this lie. Because the temptation of our culture is to say, when we see our guilt and sin, why don't we just get rid of guilt and shame altogether? Then we won't feel bad about our sin. It doesn't work. While depression and anxiety and negative self-focus are real and they need to be addressed, hope is not found in getting rid of shame and guilt altogether, but by acknowledging sin and guilt and taking them to the cross in the blood of Jesus. How about another strategy? We diminish the weight of our sins by blaming our errors on our circumstances or what others have done to us. See, the reality is that all of our lives are a complex mixture of others' sins that have hurt us, sufferings and circumstances that are difficult, and our own sinful responses to those things. But our tendency is to excuse or minimize our own sin by focusing on the sins of others or our difficult circumstances. And therefore, we can justify what we have done or say that it's not really that big of a deal compared to what has happened to us. I had to lie because, fill in the blank. I'm sorry I did that to you, but it's been a rough day. You know, how do we, how, how do, we do this from big to little? And listen carefully, I'm not minimizing either the suffering or abuse that some have endured at all, but I'm merely urging us not to let big or little sufferings become another excuse for minimizing or justifying our own sinfulness. All of these, and there's many more ways that we minimize our sin, but the Bible doesn't see it this way. Think of what we have just heard. There is no forgiveness of any sins. Notice there's not a qualifier of how big of a sin. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. We dare not take sin lightly. Every sin, every disobedience to God, every act of rebellion that we commit when we live life our way or for our success and glory rather than God's requires death. Every sin from the acceptable sins of gossip and frustration to the great requires spilled blood. Imagine if you or I had to sacrifice an animal every time we recognized a sin in our lives. Think of how death and blood would surround you. In fact, we're told that during Jesus' day, during the week of Passover, a trough was constructed from the temple into the Kidron Valley as a blood plumbing system to get all of the blood out of the temple so that the city would not be surrounded by disease and filth. This is the regular routine of sinfulness recognized for all of its ugliness. This is what happens when we see our sin for what it is and how deadly it is. Now some might say, well that whole sacrificial system, that's just animal abuse. I heard that in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. That is not what that is. The Bible says the death of animals is an accurate reflection on the ugliness and the deadliness of man's sinfulness against a holy God. 
And it's so easy for us as 21st century Christians to take sin lightly because we've taken for granted the cleansing superiority of Christ's blood. Christ died once for all so that all of our sins might be covered. But now, 2,000 years later, we can say, well, how big of a deal can sin really be? I will ask God to forgive me, and he will, because Jesus died. That is true theology, but we can use it again to minimize our sense of sinfulness and lose the joy that we ought to have in what Christ has done. Is it not possible that the reason that our faith is apathetic or merely routine is because we have not dared to look at sin for what it really is? And in taking sin at something less than the deadly reality that God's word says it is, we have failed to fall rejoicing at the foot of the cross. But when we see what sin is and we see what Christ has done, then we come to the blood of Jesus. Then we give thanks and praise to God for sending his son to shed his own blood that our death requires sin might be put away once for all. That is the joy that is offered to us in the gospel. And it's in light of this reality that the question for you and I today is not just a matter of whether Christianity is a religion that works. It's not just a matter of whether Christianity is the right religion. It's a matter of your sins and mine requiring blood to be shed in order to cover us. Because you and I are going to stand before the judgment seat of God And if we do not stand there with trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we will not have any blood but our own to pay for for our sins. And so the question is, will you come to Jesus? Without Him, there is no substitute for you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How do you plan to stand before the judgment seat of God? And if you have come to Christ, what joy, will you renew your joy in what Christ has done for us? Well, we've seen these two great facts in this passage, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, but glory, Jesus has shed his blood to put away sin once for all. What about the result of these two facts? What is the result? Well, look at verse 28. Here we find out that, yes, Christ has appeared once to bear the sins of many, but since Jesus has appeared once and has already put away sin, he's already dealt with sin with the once-for-all sacrifice of his blood. When Jesus appears a second time, which he has promised to do, Jesus' second appearance will not be to deal with sin. That's already done. This time it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is the source of all of our hope as God's people that we would be saved from judgment and brought into righteous standing in his presence forever. You know, when you talk about saving someone, you don't just save them from something. If someone's drowning, you don't just lift them out of the waves and suspend them there in midair and say, I saved you from drowning. No, you save them from the waves and you bring them to dry land in a warm blanket. When Jesus appears to save us, he will appear to save us from our sins that he has secured for us already by his sacrifice of sins, he will appear again to bring us to his presence forever. And I want you to notice the future hope of God's salvation. We often talk about our salvation as something that we already have in Christ. And that is true. Scripture says, by grace you have been saved. We have been saved by Christ's blood. But Scripture also talks about salvation as a future reality that we will be saved. 
Why does it use both present or or, uh, past tense, that it's already true of us, and yet also future tense? Theologians call this the already and the not yet. That Christ's blood has firmly and completely secured our salvation for us. Christ's blood has secured our righteous standing before God, so our hope is guaranteed. In that sense, we can say we have been saved. It's done. Christ's blood did it. It's guaranteed. But if we don't remember the future aspect of our salvation, then we will be tempted to think that this life is what God meant to secure for us. And sometimes I hear people say, well, Jesus doesn't seem to be fulfilling what he promised. Life doesn't seem to be going the way I thought it would as a Christian. But brothers and sisters, the full salvation that Jesus promised of bringing us into God's presence forever is what we're still waiting for. The whole tenor of the New Testament is one of eager expectation. It's looking ahead to something. What we have now, yes, we have the joy of our salvation being secured, but we don't have the glory of salvation yet. We're waiting for it. This is why Paul talks about looking ahead to the coming of Christ, talking about how right now we live by faith, but in the future we'll see it by sight. We have a promise that's still coming that Christ will take us out of this broken world, rescue us out of our remaining sin, rescue us from suffering, persecution, and difficulty, and bring us into his presence forever where every tear will be dried. That is the hope we're looking forward to, and we will be robbed of the full strength and joy of Christianity if we lose the sense of what's still to come, of the future that we're still looking ahead to. See, the Christian's eyes and heart are always eyes and hearts looking forward to what will be when Christ comes. When Christ comes not to deal with sin that's already been done, he's already secured our salvation by the shedding of his blood, but when he comes again to save his people. In that sense, we're still waiting for that salvation to happen. And that's why Paul can say, oh Lord, come. And Revelation can say, Lord, come quickly. Because we're waiting for something. We're waiting for the fulfillment of the promised eternal inheritance. And we're still waiting for that, even though it's been secured for us and guaranteed in Christ's blood. And that's why, notice verse 28 right at the end. What's the attitude of God's people? Our attitude is eager waiting. What is, if someone were to ask you, what, what's the central mark of a, of a Christian? There's probably many answers you could give to that. But surely an attitude of eager waiting ought to be one of them. We are eagerly waiting the return of Christ when the eternal inheritance, the promise, will be ours. And you know what it is to eagerly wait for something, right? Even though Amazon has largely reduced our need to eagerly wait to a 48-hour period, you know what it is. I was at Oregon Dairy last night for ice cream and the line snaked out the, out the ice cream shop and down the row and we have lots of kids and you see what eagerly waiting for something is. We have a vacation coming at the beach on Wednesday and you have questions like, well, why wait till Wednesday? You know what eager expectation is. Do we have that type of eager expectation for the return of Christ? 
See, eager expectation is a focus on something, so it's difficult to focus on other things. It's a focus on something where you're so enraptured of what's coming that other things happening don't have the same weight that they would otherwise. It captures our heart. It captures our imagination. It changes the way we talk and the way we live. And here we are told that Christians are those who are eagerly waiting for Christ's return. We are eagerly waiting for our Savior to come and bring the final salvation that he has promised. See, the power and the energy and the joy of salvation is rooted in Christ's past coming that has dealt with our sin once for all, but it is driving towards a glorious day that we have not yet attained, but we will attain in Christ, and that is our great hope. Brothers and sisters, we return to these two great facts. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Have you put your faith in blood that can cover your sins? Jesus has offered the once-for-all sacrifice to put away sin. Have you hid yourself in his blood? What a joy, what a freedom, what a glory to know that Christ has offered his blood for us. Yes, but what a joy, what a freedom, what a glory we are still waiting for. We are still eagerly waiting for when Christ returns again to save those of us who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, that you would send your own son to shed his blood, to put away sin once for all. Oh, would you keep us from taking sin too lightly? Would you keep us from minimizing our sin? Would we recognize sin for the the deadly offense to the holy God that it is? And may that recognition fill us with a renewed joy and thankfulness when we see the blood of Jesus Christ shed once for all for the forgiveness of our sins. And oh Lord, may we not get caught up in the details of this world, thinking that the good things of this world are all that we have to look forward to. Oh, may our hearts eagerly wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, come quickly as you have promised to save your people. We pray this in Christ's name and for Christ's glory. Amen.